Can you hear me now, man? Yeah. All right. Let's get started. So, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Friday Sports Center show with Laura and Keith. And sorry that we tried so many times because we had microphone issues. And today we're going to talk about our top stories in sports today, along with along with your wild card preview for football and also who we think is going to be playing in Super Bowl 54 and for basketball, to a preview of tonight's Lakers and Pelicans game and more. So, Keith, how's it going, man? I'm good. How are you doing? Fine. So uh, I want to apologize to everybody out there that we had to deal with the microphone thing, but now it's, I'm glad it's back and running. Yeah, we're uh, yeah, we're all good to go. We're all good to go. I uh, it, it turns out the anchor button wasn't accessing my Bluetooth uh, headphones for some reason, so we we're all good though. All right. So before we get started on the show, I want to give a happy birthday shout out to my friend Chloe, who has a birthday today. If she's listening to us right now, hope you enjoy the show and uh, and thank you and thank you for being an amazing friend. Yes, happy birthday to you, Chloe. All right. So thank you for saying that she would like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's talk about first our top stories and let's talk about first what your thoughts are on Ron Rivera being named the Redskins head coach. Do you think it's a culture change coming in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, it's a great move by the Redskins. Um, I, I really don't get it on his part. I, I don't really understand why he would make that decision. But, you know, I think it's a great decision at that for the Washington Redskins. You finally get a guy in there who is, you know, a grown-up, an established coach, a guy who demands respect, demands discipline. And, you know, now he brings in a guy also with him in Jack Del Rio, who is just as demanding of respect and discipline as Ron Rivera. So, you know, now you're bringing in a culture that is, is going to be much more rigid now than it used to be. It used to be kind of a, a little chaotic in the uh, Redskins locker room. And, you know, now you're going to bring in some stability with Ron Rivera. So I really, really love the hire. Again, I don't understand the decision on his part. Yeah, me neither. But also at the same time, I do think that Ron Rivera is excited to work with uh, Dwayne Haskins, who we both think is going to be the next, who's already the face of the Redskins franchise at quarterback. I think he's going to grow tremendously. Yeah, I think he's going to be a solid quarterback. Uh, obviously, need to continue to build the offensive line around him. Uh, definitely bring in an offensive coordinator who can maximize his talents in the biggest way possible. Um, and, and just continue to build him. It's going to be a process. I think that because he only had one year of college starts, he still has a lot of room to grow. I think he's still kind of more of a project at this point, but has obviously the tools, the size, the arm strength uh, to be a successful quarterback. But you think the Redskins move on from Alex Smith so that they can start this Dwayne Haskins era already? I think if, I, I think if Dwayne Haskins continues to show growth, then they really have no choice. I think, you know, if we look over the next year or so and we don't really see any growth in any sort of form from Dwayne Haskins, then you may have to consider going back to Alex Smith. That could happen, but ha- Alex Smith is also – rumored to be a trade target for the Chicago Bears because we already we, we've already discussed last week that Mitch Trubisky is a bust and the Bears are being rigid to not trade him the Bears are being stupid the Bears are being incredibly unaware of themselves um just admit that you missed like it's okay everybody misses on a draft like everybody misses on a high draft pick everybody misses on a quarterback every now and then it's okay just understand that by Continuing to stick with him, you are not only completely being disillusioned as a franchise, but you're also setting back what is a really, really talented roster all around because their quarterback can't uh, play at a competent level every week. 
Yeah, he, he can. He's just only like a running quarterback. Now, let's let's talk about your team next, about the New York Giants. So you're happy that they moved on from Pat Shermer, but we both predicted that Dave Gettleman would be gone. But however, John Merritt decided to retain GM Dave Gettleman. What were your thoughts on those moves? Uh, um, thank God Shermer's gone. Uh, that move made too much sense. I ran out of excuses a while ago as to why it would be a reasonable idea to keep him around. As far as Gettleman, I, I just don't really get it. Like, what has he done in his tenure as a general manager to be able to warrant him keeping his job? Number one, he has completely ruined the salary structure on that team, completely. Uh, number two, has not done well in trades, does not understand the value of draft picks, it's so much so that he traded a third and a fifth round pick for Leonard Williams. That fifth round pick is probably going to turn into a fourth round pick if they sign him. And he's done nothing the entire time he's been on the New York Giants. He has done nothing. His existence is, he's basically been non-existent the entire time that he's been on the football field. And he has done a horrible job building this team. He's let go of players that, you know, guys like Devon Kennard, who ended up going over to the Lions and, are, you know, had an unbelievable season this year for them. And it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The only thing that I can say is that, obviously, he's played a hand in, in getting the quarterback right and getting Saquon Barkley. But until something changes, until there are significant steps in the right direction, this is always going to be a puzzling move for me. Yeah, but you, you were happy about Shermer being gone, but you just don't get why Dave Gettleman's retained. Don't get it. Don't get it at all. I think it's a ridiculous we move. Both and I think that both, that both of them would be gone. Yeah, and they both should have been gone. And, you know, I, I think that I definitely commend them for firing Shermer. I think it was a good time to do it. I think it was the right time to do it. Um, but if you're going to get rid of Shermer, I don't see why Gettleman should keep his job either. He's done nothing to deserve it. John Maris, John Mara even released a statement on Dave Gettleman. He, he does believe in Gettleman. I don't know why. I don't think he should believe in Gettleman. His idea of you know, upgrading the scouting department is, quote-unquote, adding a couple of computer guys. What does that – what? Like, come on, dude. Really? Like, he just doesn't – I just don't think he has a really construct concept on how to build a football team. He just, Ooh, I just don't think he gets it. Gettleman or, or John Mara? Gettleman. Oh, I thought you were talking about Mara, the owner. No, I, no, Gettleman. Yeah, I, I was just asking because uh, cause he got the quarterback right with Daniel Jones and, and also and also Saquon Barkley, but he just needs – I just think that this is a critical year for Gettleman this, when, the, when the new league year begins. This is a critical year. Absolutely, you're right. This is a critical draft coming up, uh, and this is certainly a critical free agent period. You need to kind of reconstruct the team a little bit. Uh, definitely upgrade the offensive line, upgrade the defense as much as humanly possible. And uh, I'm, I'm not saying that they need to jump from, you know, the fourth overall pick in the draft to an eight and eight season, but, or like, you know, the playoffs or anything like that. But if I can see significant improvement, that is, that that's a good thing. If I don't see anything like that, if they're just stagnant or they somehow on God's earth manage to get worse then it's only going to reaffirm my belief that he should have been fired. And now let's talk about who we both think is going to be the next head coach of the New York Giants. Now we're on this subject. I predicted, I told you last night before we, we were on air that my pick for the New York Giants for their next head coach should be a defensive minded head coach. 
and that would be Don Wink Martindale, the Ravens defensive coordinator. I think he would be a good fit for this New York Giants football team. But I would not be shocked if it was Baylor's Matt Rule. Yeah, I don't disagree with either of those two picks at all. I think, honestly, those are the two at the top of my list. Uh, Wink Martindale has turned basically turned around that defense in the middle of the season. It was about an average defense there. Then they bring in Marcus Peters, and you know they start to blitz more to get the pass rush going, and they've looked like a legit top-five defense. And, you know, Baylor with uh, Matt Rule, he's, the way that he's been able to turn around programs from uh, Temple to Baylor is really impressive. I also think that Chris Richard, the uh, defensive backs coach for the uh, Dallas Cowboys at the current moment, could be a good candidate. But my top two would definitely be who you said, um, Matt Rule and Wake Martindale. And I'll, put, I'll throw in another candidate, Robert Sala from the 49ers. He's a defensive coordinator. Yeah, definitely a good candidate. Uh, definitely going to be a highly touted candidate from a lot of people out there. Certainly um, really putting on a show this year, being the defensive coordinator for that great 49ers defense. Could you could you definitely see maybe Gettleman recruiting Steve Wilkes as the head coach? Because he knew him from Carolina. You know, I think that'd be interesting. Um, the weird thing is, is that because of the fact that he has only coached for one year in Arizona, it's kind of like a, it, it's kind of a catch 22 in the sense that, you know, the one year that he had was so bad that you don't want to bring him in. But at the same time, you don't know if you want to bring him in because that's such a small sample size. Like you just really don't have any idea. I don't think it'd be the worst thing to do. Um, but I certainly think that there are better candidates. Yes. But with Matt rule, he could, he could be, he could be, he could come in and help fix the offensive line for the giants and hire an offensive coordinator that could really help Daniel Jones's development. Yeah, and that's something that they need. They need to continue to, you know, make strides with Daniel Jones. We saw a lot of really good things from him this year, a couple of five-touchdown games. Uh, certainly showed unbelievable ability, uh, both running out of the pocket and throwing the football in the pocket. And now it's just about giving him the proper protection that he needs. He had a solid year, but he came from being booed from Giants fans at the draft and being kind of the guy that's going to be replacing Eli Manning. Yeah, he got booed by me. I mean, I, I absolutely hated that pick at the time. And then, you know, he's really grown and, you know, shown that he is a very, very solid NFL-ready franchise quarterback. And I'm very happy at this point now with what he is. Absolutely. So now we'll talk about the Giants and predict who we think the, the next head coaches for the rest of the teams are. We have a lot of good names out there. And also, let's talk about what your reaction is to John Dorsey parting ways with the Cleveland Browns after firing Freddie Kitchens. I also heard today, yesterday, that uh, Jimmy Haslam said that the Browns are going to hire a head coach first, and then the head coach will be involved in the decision on who the next general manager will be for the Cleveland Browns. Yeah, I think this whole thing just continues to put on to display uh, the massive amount of dysfunction that are within the Cleveland organization. I mean, John Dorsey, I, I don't disagree with the firing. Um, you know, he's botched the three major things. You know, he botched the head coaching hire of Freddie Kitchens. Uh, the, the Odell Beckham trade was a massive failure in his first year. And I, I'm not, again, I don't completely put everything that happened this year on Baker, but Baker really regressed this year. 21 interceptions uh, this season, one of the tops in the league certainly regressed um but the you know it's it's sad because now you're bringing a new gm you're bringing a new head coach baker has to ball out this coming season because if he doesn't those two new guys that they bring in have no loyalty to him whatsoever and they'd be more than willing to part ways with him if he does not to uh, progress in year three 
I think the I think the Browns. I believe that Cleveland will will find a, a head coach that could really help Baker Mayfield out. I think Baker will have a bounce back year next year. I do th- I do expect the Cleveland Browns to hire an offensive minded head coach. I think my first choice for them is Mike McCarthy, and if McCarthy doesn't work out, I would go Greg Roman. Yeah, I think the number one thing for me, um, you know, number one is an experienced guy. I think that's absolutely huge. So Greg Roman and and Mike McCarthy are at the top of my list. But number two, you know, you need a guy more than anything that is going to be able to bring discipline to this football team and command the respect of a guy like a Baker Mayfield. You have to be able to rein him in and rein in this football team because this is a wild team an undisciplined team. This was the most penalized team in the league last year. They obviously had a lot of disputes, whether it's OBJ and Landry on the sidelines yelling at Freddie Kitchen, uh, Baker Mayfield screaming at Bengals fans to come fight him in the tunnel, which is the most interesting thing I've ever seen a franchise quarterback do. Uh, and Miles Garrett hitting people over the head with helmets. You need someone who's disciplined and someone who commands the room. That's why I think Mike McCarthy is my first choice to take over the Cleveland Browns as the next head coach, and I think he would do a great job. I think he would do a great job. He can handle the drama considering he's dealt with Aaron Rodgers for a number of years. But I feel like, I feel like Green Bay has benefited without Mike McCarthy because I think Matt LaFleur is the right coach for Green Bay. I think they definitely benefited. I think Aaron Rodgers definitely feels more comfortable. He's definitely happier in that system, and – you know, certainly has much more free reign in this system than he did in McCarthy's system. LaFleur's system's kind of like uh, Relouse. It's like a mix of things. It's like McVay's offense. Yeah, it's a finesse system. It's a lot of tricks. It's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of look over here, a lot of look over there, a lot of finesse. Uh, you know, they can ground and pound with Aaron Jones, but they have a great deep threat with Devontae Adams and you know, they, they kind of allow Aaron Rodgers to play uh, freely, allow him to be able to, you know, scramble and improvise out of the pocket. It's a, a system that he really, really enjoys. He seems to be enjoying himself this year. Yes, but you also, but you also think that your, your top two choices for the next head coach of the Cleveland Browns will either be Greg Roman or Mike McCarthy. But Greg Roman wouldn't be bad at all because Greg Roman's offense is about ground and pound. Yeah, I don't think Greg Roman would be bad at all. And I think what's interesting is that he's worked with two guys who, aside from arm strength, are, are play similar to Baker with Colin Kaepernick and Lamar Jackson in the sense that all three of those guys have the ability to play very, very well out of an RPO-type system that Greg Roman runs. So you implement that system in with Baker, and I think he'd be pretty successful. Yeah, yeah, I think I don't think Cleveland would part ways with Baker Mayfield. I think Baker Mayfield has a very good chance and has a lot of potential to being a very good quarterback in this league. But this year, it was just a sophomore slump for him. It was a number of things. You know, he regressed with his accuracy. He didn't really have a. He had a terrible offensive line. Uh, the play calling by Freddie Kitchens was inept. There was no chemistry with him and his receivers, particularly OBJ. Um, it, it was just really a mess in Cleveland. I don't completely absolve Baker. I don't like the interception rate, and I don't like all of the, you know, lashing out and, and you know, personality. And, you know, he's got more commercials than anybody else in the league. But I think Baker's a, got – I think Baker has the talent to be able to be a good quarterback in this league. He just has to be focused and have a good offensive line to protect him. Yes, and also let's stick with football for just a minute. And also uh... – 
there were some conflicting reports in Dallas about Jason Garrett's future. There were there was a report that I saw yesterday from Ed Werder that he agreed to part ways with the Cowboys, and the Cowboys have said that uh, that they haven't uh, that 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 the team hasn't said anything to the coaching staff yet. Yeah, I don't really get it. Um, I don't get what's taking so long. I don't understand why they're having these multiple meetings. The only thing that I can really think of is that they're speaking with Jason Garrett right now about possibly another role within the organization, possibly a front office role of some kind. Um, But as as far as his head coaching status is concerned, I think it's a no-brainer that he should be out. I think this is probably one of the easiest decisions to make in the entire NFL why they're taking this long, I don't know. It's not only it's not only completely ridiculous, but it's also a detriment to them because they're losing the amount of time that they need to be able to look for a new head coach should they finally decide to get rid of Jason Garrett. That's a tough question because you know that that his contract doesn't even expire until until January 14th of of this month. And yeah. I don't know what's taking so long, but really I think Jerry Jones is just obsessingly in love with Jason Garrett. I think so. And that, that's kind of why I think that it's not completely over as far as Garrett's status within the organization. I think there's a possibility he could be in the front office somewhere. Um, but, I mean, as far as Jason Garrett as a head coach goes, he needs to let go. I mean, this is a, an absurdly talented team that was arguably the most underachieving team in the league outside of Cleveland. And, you know, they need to just – let it go, get a new guy in there, get a fresh face, and, and, and just start over with this football team. Yeah, I mean, they, should, they, they definitely should start over, but also you said last week that the Cowboys should definitely, if Garrett is officially parted away, say if Jerry Jones announces it, you think the Cowboys should go out on a limb with Lincoln Riley. Yeah, I think either Lincoln Riley or Urban Meyer, I, I'm giving them a call and I'm throwing all the money in the world at them because they've been able – over the course of their college careers to elevate quarterbacks and make those guys better. And one thing that we really need to see is continued progress and elevation from Dak Prescott, especially if he thinks that he's worth that $35, $40 million per year benchmark that he says he is. Yeah, another uh, uh, coaching candidate the Cowboys should look at is the Chiefs offensive coordinator, Eric Bieniemy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just anybody that has the ability to – you know, be creative on the offensive side of the ball, understand how to use his players. And, and like I said, has the ability to elevate Dak Prescott. Could, could Chris Richard do it? Because he's the pass game coordinator as well. Uh, if it were me personally, I would look outside of the Cowboys organization. I, I think that Jerry Jones is too tied in to these former Cowboy players. And I think that he needs a different voice from outside of the building to come in and bring a new perspective to this football team. He got, he, I mean, in, in the past college coaches have worked in the, in the, in the Cowboys organization, such as Jimmy Johnson and Barry Switzer and Jerry Jones could look in that direction again, because I think he's just too tied with former Cowboy players. He is too tied with former Cowboy players. He, and you know, what's good for him is that all of these guys who are these former Cowboy players are just going to be pawns for him. They're going to listen to him. They're not really going to go against anything that he says. I think if you bring in a new perspective into the room, you, you open Jerry Jones's eyes up to things that maybe he hasn't thought about before. You bring in new ideas into meetings. 
Um, and, and you just bring in somebody that's going to be able to command the respect of the locker room, not just be a pawn for Jerry Jones. Yeah, but I, but I, but, but really, I kind of think that if the Cowboys get the right head coach, I do think that, I do think that, uh, what you might call this, that the Cowboys could really win the division. But really, I think the Eagles could win this division for years now because I think Peterson's the better head coach in that division. Yeah, absolutely. The structure over in Philadelphia is is much better than what they have in Dallas. I get a better I get a better owner, I think, as far as you know personnel decisions uh, with Jeffrey Lurie. I get a great GM with Howie Roseman. I get a great head coach with Doug Peterson, and I get the far more talented quarterback with Carson Wentz. The thing with Howie Roseman is he just doesn't know how to how to draft defensive backs. No, he has had a huge problem with defensive backs and wide receivers. Uh, also, signing in free agency has been a little bit difficult for them. Uh, certainly don't struggle with getting guys in the pass rush. Uh, they've done really well drafting tight ends as well and offensive linemen. Um, but, you know, for the most part, they've been able to build a really, really good football team. They sure have. And, uh, and uh, we'll talk about the playoffs and the Eagles in just a minute. But what is your thoughts on Rich Hill and Homer Bailey joining the Minnesota Twins? Yeah, two interesting moves. Uh, Bailey kind of revived his career last year uh, with the Oakland A's, and he looked really, really good. And, you know, now you bring in Rich Hell also, two veteran guys, uh, two inning eaters that you can bring into that staff who kind of, you know, can fill the void of Kyle Gibson. It's sort of like a two-for-one deal. You lose one, but you bring in two that bring in the value of losing Kyle Gibson. Um, I, I think it's a solid move, an innings-eating type of move, and, and really nothing more than that. Yeah, absolutely. But I think the Twins have a good rotation. But it, it starts off with Jose Barrios, though. But adding Hill and Bailey to that occasion were, is, is, is a solid piece. But at the same time, they got to stay healthy. Yeah, they absolutely have to stay healthy. That's the main thing, especially for Rich Hill. I mean, he's had so many seasons. You know this of, you know, just cluster injuries throughout the year, missing a couple of weeks at a time, coming back for a start or two and then going right back on the DL. So if he's able to keep himself healthy for uh, through a full season, I think this is a guy who would be able to throw 180, 190 solid innings, get like a three-and-a-half ERA out of it, and I think you're getting your money's worth. Yeah, absolutely. And also another top storyline in baseball for the Dodgers is Alex Verdugo is continuing to work through back issues, and it doesn't concern me that the back injury that he had – while playing in Tropicana Field is that severe, but I expect Verdugo to be ready to go on opening day. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, you know, certainly a long off season for him to be able to work through that injury. And, you know, since it's not my, uh, really, really serious injury, it's going to be one of those things that he's going to be able to positively work through. And I, I think that, you know, as long as he continues to do his rehab work every day, he should be perfectly fine. He is rehabbing, but he has not yet resumed baseball activities. Yeah, I think he – well, you know, with a back issue, it's tough, especially for a hitter since you get so rotational. Um, and, you know, and for a guy like him who's playing the outfield, you know, you want to be able to have a healthy back. It's going to also affect your hamstrings as well. Um, you know, keep your upper – you know, your legs and, and your core area healthy. It's going to be really, really important for him. So you don't want to rush the process of, of you know, healing that back up. Yeah, but all in all, I expect Alex Verdugo to have a very good 2020 season coming up for, for him. Yeah, I definitely think so. 
Yeah, and, and he and I don't think he he should be shelved on opening day. I think he'll be ready to go on opening day, but I think he'll probably be, be limited in spring training. I think. Yeah, nothing wrong with that, but you know, as long as he's ready for opening day, then it, it really it really doesn't matter. Yeah, but yeah, but I I do expect him to be ready for spring training though when camp begins. Even if he's ready on a limited basis, I mean, I, I'm still okay with that, just as long as he's able to work, uh, you know, work hard and get ready for opening day and be fully healthy by then. Absolutely. We'll talk about the Dodgers in just a minute. But also, we had sad news in the NBA on New Year's Day. Can't believe that happened. But really, former NBA commissioner David Stern passed away due to a brain, due, due to brain problems. But really, I think, I really think that this was a big loss for the NBA. And it's fan. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Big loss. Um, certainly one of the most influential commissioners uh, in, in the history of the league. A guy who was a really, really big influencer on, on making the game much more global. Um, you know, a, a heavy-handed commissioner, but a guy that was very well-respected by the players and certainly is going to be missed. A very, very sad, sad day. It was a sad day, but the only re- thing I didn't like David Stern was when he vetoed the Chris Paul trade to my Lakers. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. I'm sure you weren't a huge fan of it. It really changed everything, you know, sending him, being able to veto that trade, then you send them to the Clippers, and they form Rob City and, and make a really, really good basketball team. I thought that that was stupid for David Stern to do that. That was ridiculous. And David Stern said back then uh, – he didn't want the Lakers to be powerful. <sighs> you know, I think he was just trying to, I think he was just trying to create balance in the NBA, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah. And also the pellet, the, 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 the Hornets back then, they were, they weren't, they were, they were still being sold. And that's why the NBA was owning them. Yeah. The Pelicans at that, the Hornets at that time were an absolute mess. But the Pelicans are in a good place now. Yeah, yeah, they definitely are. Yeah, we'll talk about the Lakers Pelicans game in just a minute, but also let's talk let's talk about where Josh Donaldson signs a four year ninety million dollar deal with the Washington Nationals. And even though that the Nationals got Starlin Castro, it does not guarantee Starlin Castro a starting role for the Nationals. No, I think that the Starlin Castro signing, while I think it was a good signing. Uh, I, I think that Starlin is more of a fallback plan in case they don't get Josh Donaldson. Um, but, you know, I, I certainly think that Josh Donaldson and the Washington Nationals make a good fit. Uh, that's definitely a need for them at third base, especially since Anthony Redone went to the uh, Los Angeles Angels. And it's a much cheaper option as well, while still being able to get that 30 home run production and a solid glove at third base. It doesn't mean that, Starlin Castro is going to start for the Nationals. I don't expect Starlin Castro to be the starting second baseman or third baseman for the Nationals because I I I think Carter I do expect Carter Kaiboom to start at second base. As I do expect, yeah, I do expect Carter Kaiboom to start at second base. Like I said, I think that as if they don't get Josh Donaldson, that's when Starlin Castro is going to be inserted into the lineup. Yeah, that's that's why they just did this just in case kind. Of, it's it's a just in case kind of move. Still a really really good deal though. Even if they do get Donaldson, you get a, a really solid bat off the bench. Yeah, and, and Castro, and he's a he's a vet, veteran journeyman who was on rebuilding teams with the uh, Yankees and Marlins. He could be a really good mentor to Carter Kaiboom. Yeah, he definitely could. 
But I don't think I don't expect Carter Kyboom to start in the minors. I do expect the Nationals to still go after Donaldson despite signing Kyboom. Yeah, despite, I agree. No, despite st- signing Starlin Castro for their bench, yeah. and because Castro's a utility guy. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that they'll still be able to sign Donaldson. And and also bring back Zimmerman. Yes. I think I think I've, and then Howie Kendrick will form that bench with uh, with with. Uh, Castro and then Stevenson as a reserve outfielder and then and then I'm I'm not forgetting about Michael Taylor. Yes, yes. Who I think could could start in right field on days Adam Eaton doesn't play. Yeah, I definitely think so. And uh let's let's also talk about Will Harris signing with the Nationals. Do you think that's kind of an upgrade for the bullpen for the Nationals? Oh, I love that move. Um I absolutely love it. The only thing that I could say really against it is the fact that there have been so there's just so many innings taxed on Will Harris's arm. He's pitched over 60 innings five of the last seven seasons. So, I mean, he has just so much on his arm. But aside from that, he's a really, really effective reliever. Obviously, a ton of postseason experience against the Nationals also uh, in the World Series. And, um, but just a, a really, really great all around reliever. He's been a high leverage guy for the Astros for the last seven years or so. And, um, you know, definitely a major upgrade for the Nationals for what has, <clears throat> outside of a little bit of a stretch during the playoffs, been uh, an atrocious bullpen for the last couple of years. It has been an atrocious bullpen for the Nationals, but what, what won the World Series for the Nationals was late inning magic with their offense and their starting pitching. Yeah, their starting pitching was amazing, particularly Steven Strasburg, who just showed out obviously winning World Series MVP, and he pitched multiple good games before that uh, as well for them. He was just unreal, and he lived up to um, <clears throat> all of the expectations that they set out for him. Yes, absolutely. And uh, he des- I knew he- you thought the Nationals would lose both Rendon and Strasburg, but I did expect the Nationals to keep Steven Strasburg because Mike Rizzo val- valued pitching, you know, and he, and he loves Strasburg. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's certainly the direction that I would have went. I would have kept Strasburg if it were me personally. Um, you know, Rendon's an unbelievable player, but, you know, you saw the type of contract that he got. And, you know, obviously you weren't going to be able to dish out max contracts like that to those, you know, to both of those guys at the same time. So I think if I would have went any direction, uh, obviously pitching is the thing that wins championships. But also the Nationals have the depth to be able to overcome the loss of Rendon. So I think either way, they'll be fine. Yeah, they're going to be just fine because you got Juan Soto, who's who's going to be a star and, and a great player for this decade for the Nationals. I think I think this saves up money for the Nationals to potentially give Juan Soto a big contract with the Nationals. Yeah, it definitely does. And I expect a big contract for him um, within the next few years or so. And I expect it to be absolutely huge. Do you think the Nationals will will save up money to keep Juan Soto for a long time? Oh, definitely. Yeah, they're not going to lose him. I have no doubt in my mind that they're not going to lose Juan Soto. They were losing Harper was eh, but Juan Soto can really perform in the postseason. Yeah, Juan Soto has shown you that not only is he an amazing talent, but he can perform at the biggest stage. Which, you know, for Bryce Harper, that was something that he was unable to do in a Nationals uniform. But at such a young age. We've seen such unbelievable star potential and clutch potential out of Juan Soto already. Victor Robles is not a power guy. He's kind of like an Alex Verdugo, but he's a guy that makes really good contact with the bat. 
Still has a lot of growing pains to get through, but Victor Robles is definitely a guy that can be a game changer on the base pads. Yeah, definitely. Overall, I think as he continues to grow, um, had a, had a really, really big kind of two month stretch or so where he was just terrible. He could not find his swing, but you know, as he gets older and as he just understands how to slow the game down, I think he's going to be a star. But he's a game changer already in center field, though. Yeah, definitely. When he makes those jumping plays and diving catches, taking extra base hits away, Victor Robles is that guy. Yeah, he's an excellent defensive center fielder. And, you know, just as long as he continues to progress offensively, he's going to be a really, really good two-way player. He should be, absolutely. Now let's talk about where Nick Castellano signs. He signs a four-year deal with the Toronto Blue Jays because I feel like they need a DH. Yeah, I definitely think that they could sign a DH. Um, for me, if I'm the Blue Jays, I'm still looking more towards pitching. You know, you got a, a lot of young uh, a lot of young bats. Uh, for me, I think what makes the most sense is for the Chicago Cubs to re-sign him, especially if you're thinking about in any capacity trading Chris Bryant you still need to have power bats that are not only going to be able to draw fans in, but also that are just going to be able to put up production. And clearly Nick Cassiano showed that he is very comfortable hitting in the Cubs lineup. He's very comfortable hitting in Wrigley field. And I think it would make a lot of sense for them to retain him. It could, but I feel like that Castellanos, he's not really a good defensive right fielder. He could really benefit with the blue Jays because he could DH there. And then, on occasions, you move Randall Gertrick to left field and put Castellanos in right field in National League ballparks. Yeah, I could see it. I, I just think for me that it should be more of a, you know, we need to retain this guy type of mentality for uh, the Chicago Cubs, especially after pro- the production that he put up. The reason why I say that is because we, the Blue Jays could use Ludus Goriel Jr. as a utility man. Yeah, I think, again, I think it makes sense, um, but – you know, I, I just see the Cubs really wanting to retain him and wanting to keep that power bat in the lineup, especially if they think about trading Chris Bryant. I don't think the Cubs would want to trade Chris Bryant. Chris Bryant wants to be a Cub for life, despite all those rumors I've heard. Eh, I don't know. When there's smoke, there's fire. I usually believe these type of rumors, and, um, you know, especially with all of this contract restructuring that they're going on with right now where they're trying to figure out if – you know, if he has one year left on his contract, if he has two years left on his contract, I think the reality of the situation is that, you know, Chris Bryant's going to command a ton of money. And, you know, I, I just don't know if they're going to want to give that money to Chris Bryant. I think that they're, they'd probably prefer to give a big contract to a guy like Javier Baez. I think that's, I think that could happen, but I just don't, I don't picture Chris Bryant in a Dodger uniform. Oh, neither do I. So that's why I, I picture Castellanos with the Blue Jays because he really could be a good, like, number five hitter in the lineup to go with uh, Vlad Jr., Bo Bichette, Kevin Biggio, and Rowdy Tellez. Yeah, I could see it. And I, I think Tellez kind of like this next Movon project. Yeah, he's a nice little player. Uh, I didn't really know much about him until, you know, kind of later in the season. And you know, I, I, I think that he is a pretty nice player, certainly gets – certainly doesn't get, you know, the spotlight that guys like, uh, you know, Guerrero and, and Biggio and Bichette get, but, you know, certainly a nice piece for them. But I think Bo, I think for the Blue Jays, their leadoff hitter is going to be Bo Bichette. Yeah, I agree. I think so, too. He's real. I saw, I saw him play against the Dodgers last year when the Blue Jays played the Dodgers, and I saw 
star potential in him. And when I saw Vlad Jr. hit that homer. Yeah, they're both excellent players. I think Biggio, uh, not Biggio, um, Bichette is an excellent, excellent player. Great bat speed, um, you know, great speed all around. Very, very athletic. Uh, I, I think that he's going to be a really, really good player. Yeah, absolutely. And but we, but I think Castellanos could could end up being a Toronto Blue Jay just because the Blue Jays could use him as their DH and play right field on some occasions too. But you think the Cubs would really want to keep him around? Yeah, I mean, if it were me, that's what I would do. And a question for the day is, do you think Dodger fans should blame Andrew Friedman for the Dodgers' slow offseason? Because there's a lot of fans that are acting impatient with him. Yeah, I really don't know why. Um, It's super interesting to me the way that the rich complain about how they're not getting any richer. Like, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, you take a look up and down that Dodgers team. They have star power everywhere on that field. You got Bellinger, Muncie, um, you know, uh, Justin Turner, Corey Seager. Gavin Lux is going to be a great player for them. Alex Verdugo is a great player. Then in the rotation, Bueller, um, Urias, Dustin May this year, Clayton Kershaw. Um, you know, bo- their bullpen is going to be really, really good now that they've added Blake Trinan. I think Joe Kelly in year two is going to have a really good all-around bounce back year. Kenley Jansen hopefully comes back nicely. I just don't really see what the complaints are about, especially because of the fact that if they want to go out and get these guys like a Francisco Lindor, like a Mike Clevenger, a Chris Bryant, um, they're going to have to give up so much of their young talent to be able to do it that it would kind of deplete half of their roster. So I really don't understand why Dodger fans are being so impatient with him. This team is so good. It is good, but I, I like, Stan Kasten, the, the Dodgers chief executive officer, said that you don't have to make big splashes for the Dodgers. They're, they're about sustaining a winning team. That's what the Dodgers are all about. Yeah, absolutely. That's what they should be about. I mean, if it ain't broke, they'll fix it. Look, I know that they've had some struggles as far as, you know, not only getting to the World Series and losing it, but then last year they lost on, you know, to the Nationals in the divisional round. But, I mean, this is a team that – as it is currently constructed, is by far not only the best team in their division, but the best team in the National League. That's just my personal opinion. And, you know, there's not really a big splash that you need to make necessarily at this moment because not only do they have a lot of star young players, but they have guys like Lux and May uh, coming up this year who, and Urias full-time in the rotation now who are going to be able to make a really, really big impact for them. And losing those guys in a trade for a Lindor or a, you know, a Chris Bryant, I, I think it's not worth it to me. Or a Betts, but there's rumors about Mookie Betts to the Dodgers. They're heating up, but I don't really expect any movement at this time right now for the Dodgers. No, I don't think so either. I don't think they should, and I, I think that Dodgers fans should really calm down. They should calm down because because the the other question we have is, do you th- do you think are, do you think the Dodgers are afraid to go over the luxury tax threshold again, or do you think the Dodgers are just conserving their money to extend Ballinger and Bueller? I think that's what it is. And, and that's honestly the move that I would make first before anything. You know, I understand the idea of wanting to go over the luxury tax as far as, you know, bringing in better players uh, to, to, you know, continue to build up your roster. But at the same time, you need to continue to think about your plan moving forward. And your plan moving forward is having the two centerpieces, Walker Bueller and Cody Bellinger, on your team. And if you can't save up money to be able to retain those guys on the books, uh, then you're going to lose two big pieces. And now all of a sudden, 
when you lose them, you're taking a couple of steps back in your progress in your progress for championships when uh, moving forward. I don't think I think the Dodgers are smart are playing this very smart, saving all their money to give extensions to Bellinger and Bueller, Seager maybe, and and also uh, and also uh, Dustin May too and Urias. Yeah, I mean you need to you need to save up the room. You need to create cap room to be able to sign these guys and and you know keep them as your core for the future. That's why the Dodgers haven't made any moves. This, they only made one significant move in Blake Trinan, but the Dodger fans just need to calm down and and not say, "Oh, Andrew Friedman's being too cheap." Andrew Friedman knows what he's doing, but he does know what he's doing. But Friedman, but a lot of people, a lot of Dodger fans just want more out of Andrew Friedman. I don't well look I think that you know and, and we kind of talked about this last time on the podcast is the fact that there's a difference between there's a difference between spending money and just kind of throwing money out there just for the sake of throwing money out there you know there you bring in players that are going to impact your team um you know for a reason you don't just go out there and throw away your future uh, you know, and all of these great young players just for one guy who, you know, may or may not have a positive impact on your team. You really don't know because those five guys, you trade a guy like a Lux and a you trade Lux may, um, you know, guys like that in a big package to get one of these guys. Yeah. You got this big impact guy, but I mean, now you've depleted not only your future, but half of your current roster at the moment. I don't think the Dodgers are going to trade their whole farm system. I think Andrew Friedman knows what he's doing with it because his vision for the Dodgers is building around your, your, your top prospects to win World Series championships. Yeah, which is what you should do. So I think that Dodgers fans need to calm down. Andrew Friedman is smart. He knows what he's doing, and he's got a plan. And I think that the Dodgers fans just need to trust him. Yeah, I, I trust Andrew Friedman and what he's doing, but I just don't get why fans don't really – uh, don't really like Andrew Friedman that much. I think, I think Andrew Friedman's a smart. I think what ends up happening is, is that when you have these teams like the Dodgers, like the Yankees, where you have these big payrolls and, you know, you have all of these play, you know, you have a lot of assets. They, they want to go out and spend the assets and, and just create these kind of like super teams, if you will. You want to bring in these great players just to make your roster that much better than everybody else, especially in the Dodgers case, because you've been to the pinnacle, you've been at the top of the World Series and lost. Um, but at the same time, doing that, it, you know, costs you futures with players like, you know, Lux and May, and eventually bringing in all of that payroll is going to cost you the opportunity to extend guys like Ballinger and Bueller. So it's a really, really difficult balance there that general managers are trying to find between building a competitive team and keeping your assets while also bringing in new assets. And I think that Andrew Freeman's done a really good job. He sure has. But, but I wonder, but also uh, Dave Roberts is like the, is now the general manager de facto of the Dodgers, aside from his role as the manager of the team. And I think Dave Roberts has done a fantastic job with the Dodgers, despite fans, com fans bashing at Roberts because of his decisions in the playoffs. But I think he's got to make better decisions in the playoffs though, which well, I have to yeah, I mean, he obviously does, you know, and that comes with that, that continues to come with experience. That's going to come over time. You know, though the ability to make quality decisions in the playoffs doesn't happen overnight. Um, at the, you know, and at the same time, he's done a really, really good job with what he's been given. 
you know, there have been multiple times, especially in the bullpen, where the players just have not lived up to snuff. And that's not the manager's fault if he goes to them and they don't perform. And I think that's what a lot of the fans tend to forget. But I do think – I think Dave Roberts is the manager of the future for the Dodgers. So I don't expect any managerial changes for the Dodgers for quite a while. Yeah, I agree with that. But with that being said, uh, let's talk about uh, – let's talk about can a World Series contender go over the luxury tax threshold and payroll? I, I probably say not, not necessarily because, for example, the Dodgers are a team that doesn't like to increase their payroll – they're a team that likes to sustain winning, not about – they're not about payroll or anything. Because when they traded away Adrian Gonzalez for Matt Kemp two years ago, for example, it was about resetting the uh, luxury tax hold, the luxury tax threshold because because when when Ned Coletti was the GM for the Dodgers, the Dodgers exceeded payroll. And now since Friedman took over, he's reducted it. I think it completely depends on the situation. Um, if you're a situation like the Dodgers where you have a deep roster of assets, not only on your major league roster, but in your minor league roster, you don't necessarily have to go over the luxury tax because you have a constant inflow of depth throughout your system. Whereas if you're a team that, you know, maybe you don't have a great minor league system, you don't have one of the top ranked farm systems in the league and you're super top heavy on your major league roster then, you know, you can, you can kind of push the envelope a little bit and, you know, go over the luxury tax because your window of being able to compete at a high level is much smaller when you don't have the depth in your farm system than as opposed to teams like the Dodgers who, because of their depth throughout the farm system and their entire team, they're going to be able to continue to have roster turnover and still produce these great players for years to come. If you're a team that just has great assets on the major league level, you're going to continue to lose those assets one by one, and you're not, and you're going to run out eventually of quality guys to be able to replace them. So I think it completely depends on the situation. I'm just saying I don't think the Dodgers would be in the situation that the Red Sox were because Dombrowski really exceeded payroll there. Yeah, Dombrowski really decided to go over uh, the luxury tax on a consistent basis. He wanted to, you know, feed high-level talent onto their major league roster, which in theory makes sense. But I think at the same time, he really messed up their, you know, cap space situation. Yeah, that's why he, that's why the Red Sox moved on from Dave Dombrowski. I'm thinking of an example of that. The reason why the Dodgers went under, under the luxury tax threshold, which was smart. I think it's smart if you have the, you know, if you have the necessary depth in assets to be able to do it. If you don't, then you almost kind of have to force your hand at continuing to adding payroll so that you'll be able to have a great major league roster to compensate for your lack of depth moving forward. I just don't think the Dodgers will go over the pay, the luxury tax anymore because I feel like that Friedman now has a new plan in place. Yeah, no, I agree with that. So with that being said, let's talk about uh, some project uh, projected rotations for the Dodgers and the Mets. But for the Dodgers, it's gonna, my rotation for the Dodgers looks like this. It's going to be, uh, in this particular order, it would be Bueller, Kershaw, Maeda, Urias, and May. Yeah. Yeah, no, spot on. I think that that's perfect. And the reason, and, 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 I, and I did tell you last week that Dustin May is my early favorite to win the NL Rookie of the Year award. Certainly going to be in the conversation. Because I think this year, I think – He's not going to be on an innings restriction like how the Dodgers did with Urias. Dustin May is too good for that. Yeah, I think that he's going to be able to uh, let loose this year. 
I definitely think so. And I also think with May, he can be a really good pitcher for the Dodgers when it's October, when yeah, the postseason's he, around. Well, he's got unbelievable stuff. And, you know, as you get deeper into the playoffs, your stuff plays. And having, you know, a 98-mile-an-hour fastball and a wipeout slider is, is going to be able to play at any time of the year. And for, my, and for the Mets, talk about your, uh, my, mine and your projected rotation for the Mets. You might agree or disagree with this. It's going to be uh, DeGrom, Syndergaard, Stroman, Porcello, and Waka with Steve Matz going to the bullpen as a long reliever. Say one more time. DeGrom, Syndergaard, Stroman, mm-hmm. Porcello, and Waka. Yeah, um, so I kind of have two rotations. The first rotation that I have is exactly that. The second one that I have is DeGrom, Thor, uh, Stroman, Matz, and Porcello. And the reason why I made two is because of the Steven Matz factor. I'm not 100% sure if they're going to retain him on, his ro- on the roster. My understanding is that, that they're working very, very hard to trade him at the moment. Um, so, and I, I think because of the persistence, and I think he has good value, so I think it's going to happen. Yeah, and uh, I think that I think that if the Mets trade Mats, then I think their rotation will be fine, despite having all righties. Yeah, I mean it's still a good rotation. They have good depth in their rotation. Um, obviously, it, it's really a more of a wait and see type of deal with guys like Waka and Porcello, certainly, and you know even Stroman, who had a little bit of growing pains last year, stepping into uh, you know his new rotation uh, spot with the New York Mets and. Hopefully he has, you know, in his first full year there, he becomes more comfortable and more confident. Before we get to the Dodger lineup, let's break down what you and I both think the potential lineup for the New York Mets is, and we'll take it slow. So let's start off who you think is going to be the leadoff hitter for the New York Mets, and I pick Brandon Nemo in center field. Yeah, I actually think that the leadoff hitter is going to be Jeff McNeil. Um, I think McNeil is an absolutely perfect leadoff hitter. Maybe doesn't have the prototypical speed that you might see from a leadoff hitter, even the, pro- even the type of speed that Nimmo has. But he hits the ball all over the field, puts up tough grinding at-bats, and doesn't really strike out very often. I, I changed my mind with you on this one. I, I thought it would be Nemo, but I think Brandon Nemo's better off hitting in the eighth spot because he can definitely turn the lineup over with his speed. That's why I'm going to switch it to Jeff McNeil as the leadoff hitter. Yeah, I 100% agree. I also have Nemo at, in my number eight spot and uh, exactly with the same thing that you have. And I think who's going to bat second is Ahmed Rosario. Yeah, I, I have Ahmed Rosario batting second as well. I think he's shown a lot of offensive growth, certainly provides more speed near the top of the lineup uh, than McNeil does, but – I, I think that he's a much better suited two hitter because he's much less of a, you know, prototypical contact hitter the way that McNeil does. He's got some nice power from the shortstop position that I think can transition nicely into the middle of the order. Yeah. And that's why I have, uh, I have McNeil leading off in cl- because of the lefty righty balance, but my three hitter could be kind of different because I think Cano's more of a uh, cleanup hitter. So mm-hmm. my three hitter is your boy, Pete Alonzo. Yeah, three-hitter is Pete Alonzo for me. Um, you know, I, I have very, very high expectations for him this year, and I expect him to I expect him to deliver. I expect him to be an all-star player. He was in the home run derby last year, but it's going to be hard for him to repeat his 53-homer success that he had in his rookie season. But this, up, this upcoming season, I think Pete Alonzo and Cody Bellinger are going to be, like, in the top five in home runs. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not, uh, I, I'm with you there. It's going to be really difficult for 53 home runs to happen again. I'm certainly not expecting it, but you know, this is a dude that has the ability to hit 35, 40 home runs for, you know, the next eight to 10 years. I think he has more than enough power to be able to do it. And a good three hitter too. Cause even though he's not, he's a 260 hitter. I saw him play live at Dodger stadium last year when I went to one of these Mets Dodgers games and man, he can swing a good bat. Yeah, he can. He's got power to all fields. I think he's got a good approach. Um, you know, if he can, if he can just kind of cut down on the strikeouts a little bit, he's, you know, kind of susceptible to the high fastball. Um, you know, I think if he can just kind of, you know, rein in his swing a little bit more, then the average is going to be able to go up. Next, my four hitter for the Nets is Robinson Cano. And when healthy, he is one of these guys that's a good cleanup hitter and a good run producer. Absolutely. I agree. Um, the only thing is, is that my four hitter, and I'm taking a Hail Mary by the grace of God, um, my four hitter is Yoannis Cespedes. And this is just banking on the fact that maybe he'll be healthy for more than five seconds and maybe not fall off of a horse on his ranch. Um, and if he is healthy, then him and Cespedes and Conforto and Cano in the middle of the lineup is just lethal. That's very good. Uh, but again, that completely predicates on the idea of Cespedes actually being healthy. Yeah, but I have Cespedes as, as the starting left fielder if healthy and, and in the five spot when healthy. But, but I, I kind of doubt it at this point. But I'm going to say Cano hits fourth and it hit and, and, and my five hitter for the Mets is if healthy is going to Cespedes. Yeah, totally reasonable. Um, my number five hitter is actually at the moment uh, Robinson Cano. So we kind of have that flip-flopped uh, for me. But, I mean, it, it's fine. The same general area is good. And then my sixth hitter would be Michael Conforto. Yeah, that's my number six hitter. First 30 home run season last year really grew, uh, especially continuing to grow in his ability to hit left-handed pitching. Uh, and I'm really excited to see what he brings to the table this year. He really improved on hitting against lefties. And if only Jock Peterson would improve on hitting against lefties, then my God, this Dodgers lineup would be lethal. Yeah, he'd be able to be a consistent threat in the lineup and be able to hit 30 home runs. But he's just not a guy. He's just not. Jock Peterson's a guy that only hits righties very well, but is a good leadoff hitter, which we'll talk about shortly. But Michael Conforto hitting sixth, I think, I think is a good spot for him because when he hits leadoff, I don't think, I don't think it's good for him. No, I think that he's got enough power uh, to be able to hit in the middle of the lineup. He's certainly not going to be a guy like a, you know, an Alonzo or a Cespedes that have the ability to hit, you know, 35 to 40 home runs. But I think that Conforto is a 25 to 30 home run type of guy. He's going to bring you, you know, 30 to 40 doubles, um, you know, good enough power to be able to drive the ball out of the ballpark, but at the same time, a true run producer with a very good swing. My seven hitter for the Mets is your catcher, Wilson Ramos. Yeah, that's where I have him too. Uh, very, very good offensive catcher last year. He especially really turned it on in the second half. Um, I, I'd like to see him continue to get better behind the plate and see him continue to grow his rapport with the pitching staff, continue, uh, particularly Noah Syndergaard, um, but certainly deserves with his offensive production to be in the lineup every day. Yes, he does. But really, I think Thor likes likes Thomas Nitto catching him. Yeah, he does like Tom. He much prefers Thomas Nitto catching him. He's a much better receiver of the ball. A better game, I think, than Wilson Ramos. And I understand it. 
Um, but, you know, you also want to have as much offensive firepower in your lineup as possible, and, and that's what Ramos brings as opposed to Nito. And batting eighth is what you and I both agreed on, Brandon Nemo. And I think if he's healthy, he can definitely be an impact player with his speed and with his glove in center field. Yeah, definitely. And he's also one of the more patient hitters in the league. Definitely uh, has the ability to put up a high on base percentage. Um, you know, a, a dude that, you know, puts up, puts together really, really good at-bats on a consistent basis, um, you know, fights off really tough pitches, doesn't strike out a whole lot, and I think is, is a very, very good number eight hole hitter. And then batting ninth is whoever's starting, but I do predict the opening day starter for the New York Mets in 2020 is none other than Jacob deGrom. The best pitcher in Major League Baseball. And, I, and he's going to start opening day against the Nationals, even you start with the defending champs. That's it, and it's going to be a really, really fun opening series. I think it'll be a pitcher's duel because if I think Strasburg's going to start opening day, and then I think Scherzer will go after him. I mean, no matter who you face, whether it's Strasburg or Scherzer, it's going to be a really, really good matchup. Or Corbin. Corbin is really good. Yeah, Corbin really – really lived up to the hype of that contract last year. He was He's an excellent number three for them. He was really good in Arizona, too. I thought he would be a Yankee as well because he's from New York. But I really think he's found a home with the Washington Nationals. Yeah, I think he has. And now let's go to the Dodgers and talk about my projected. But I'll tell you that it's a given that I pick. It's a given that Javin Lux is going to make the, the opening day roster for the Dodgers. But at the same time, he is going to be a starter for the Dodgers for many years to come. But I kind of feel like that Gavin Lux is going to go in the route that Alex Verdugo went in last year. He started out as a reserve, and then he worked his way into the lineup because he's still relatively young, though. Yeah, I think that's a smart move. Um, you know, you don't want to put a ton of pressure on him right away. You want to be able to grow into uh, the speed of Major League Baseball, especially with the young age that he was in. And he only really had a small sample size uh, last year uh, with the Los Angeles Dodgers. So you want to allow him to kind of catch up and grow. Uh, but when he fully takes the reins in the lineup, I think he's going to be an excellent player. But do you but do you agree with me that Gavin Lux is going to make the opening day roster for the Dodgers in some capacity? Yes. And because I heard Dave Roberts say that Lux could also play some left field too, which I think he'll be good at. Yeah, I think he's athletic enough to be able to do it. And play, but I think the future for him is at second base. Yes, I think so. Not, and he can also play some shortstop too if Seager needs a, a sabbatical day. Yeah, every now and then. But I, I, I expect him to play mostly second base and some left field. Yes, I agree. And, and my projected lineup for the Dodgers looks like this. And I have leading off and playing left field. Depending on who's starting between a righty and lefty, and that would be a split platoon of leadoff hitters of Jock Peterson and Kike Hernandez. Interesting. I actually had Alex Verdugo as a leadoff hitter. I think he'd be a really, really solid one. I think so, too. But coming off a of back injury, I have Verdugo hitting eighth, which I'll talk about shortly, is because Verdugo, w with his speed, he can really turn a lineup over in the eighth spot. Yeah, yeah but I think, you know, if he is – 
when you get into spring training, if he progresses well through his rehab and then he finally gets himself fully healthy by the end of spring training into opening day, I want to take advantage of that speed fully at the top of the order. Plus, he has the ability to hit the ball to all fields and get on base. That's why I have a, a, the leadoff hitter being a split platoon between Jack Peterson and Kike Hernandez in left field. Huh. Okay. And all right. Kike, I mean, I just and Kike can all, Kike plays really good defense in left field too, and. He's really progressed in with his bat through in the past two years. I've seen a lot of progress with his bat. Yeah, all right. I mean, I just I, you know, Verdu. I, I just thought Verdugo could be a really good leadoff. But, but I mean, the, I get your point. But there's a reason why I have Jock leading off is because you have he has produced in the leadoff spot when called upon. Yeah, I get it. Batting second for me in the batting second for me is the second baseman Max Muncy. Okay. Behind All right. Peterson. And I'd say that because Max Muncie had an had an unbelievable season for the Dodgers last year. He picked up where he left off from his two, 2018 campaign. And I do expect more big things out of Max Muncie. And he is already he's already he's already a fan favorite here in LA because of the Brass Monkey song. They used it as Max Muncie and Max Muncie hitting second behind Peterson. You get two good power bats. In the, in the top two spots in the lineup. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of think that because of that power bat, I want him in the middle of the order. So I actually had Cordy Seager as the number two hitter. I think he provides really good doubles power, uh, good gap power at the two spot in the order. And he has the ability with that gap power to be able to get himself into scoring position right away with one swing of the bat, setting up the middle of the order to be able to drive him in. He could eventually get back to the two spots some, at some point. But I, I, I picture Max Muncy either as a two hitter or a six hitter because with Muncy, he can really, he could really like compliment with the back to back homers that he has with the Jack Peterson and Max Muncy starting at second base is that's where I have that. And speaking of Muncy, I have Max Muncy starting at second base to begin the season. Yes, I do also. So that Gavin Lux gets, so that Gavin Lux still makes the opening day roster, but in, in more of a limited way, you know? Yes. Yeah, and Muncy goes to second, and I know he prefers to play second, but my but it but real realistically for me, I prefer Max Muncy at first base. Yeah, I think long term he's a much better first baseman. But he's a pretty good second baseman too. He's he's not bad at it at all. He's not bad. You know, I think if you have the ability to find a better fielder, then I'd move him to first base in a heartbeat. Yeah, that, that's my preferred position for me for Max Muncy is first base. Yeah, definitely. Batting third for me is, that's a given, Justin Turner. Yeah, definitely. Turner in the three spot I think is perfect. But there, but even though he's playing on another contract year for the Dodgers, I don't see the Dodgers letting him go. No, I don't think so. If he's able to have a fully healthy season, then you know he, he can certainly still be an impact player. He's like a Donaldson, Josh Donaldson 2.0. I, I I could argue that Donaldson's better, um, but that's just my personal opinion. Even though people told me that Turner's defense at third base has declined recently, I I see Justin Turner having a bounce back season at third base and having better defensive numbers at third base despite the fall down this past season. And even though he's he's thirty he's a thirty he's thirty five soon to be thirty six, I just don't think age matters to him. No, I don't think so. I think he, as long as, you know, he stays durable and, you know, is able to continue to, you know, just keep his body healthy, I think he'll be able to be just fine. 
He's going to be fine. And batting fourth and playing first base for me is Cody Bellinger. Yeah, that's a given. Uh, throwing your best player in the middle of a lineup, one of the top five players in the game, and uh, a dude that's probably going to hit 40-plus home runs again this year. He is. And do you think he's going to grow into that captain of the Dodgers? Absolutely. I think he's already on his way. Yeah, and I think he's a Dodger for life. Yeah, I think so. And I think with Bellinger, when I first saw him play, I was like, I was really high on him before he came up to the Dodgers. He I, he was like one of my favorite prospects before coming up to the big, big leagues. Yeah, I mean, his offensive prowess just jumps off the charts. The bat speed, uh, the power to all fields, the ability to adjust at the plate like he's shown this past year, um, and, and certainly a really, really good defender as well. A strong arm, can play multiple positions, uh, fairly athletic. Uh, he's just a really good all-around player. And for me, with – with Cody Bellin Cody Bellinger, I think, even though that he he's been criticized and not performing in the postseason, I see Cody Bellinger living up to that postseason potential. I think he's gonna grow and improve on his numbers in the postseason. Yeah, I think he will. Even though the the, the last three years in the postseason he's hit like two eleven, two eighty six OPS and an OPB at two eighty six, his OPS at five forty nine. I mean, it could be better, but I feel like that He's learning every time. He is. He still has a lot of room to grow. He has plenty of room to grow, but he's not going to be like a Harper that can't perform in the postseason. But I I just think it's just that rookie year that when he performed, when he had a bad World Series. Yeah. And, you know, I think that he's just going to continue to learn how to hit in the postseason, you know, how to hit high level pitching in high level moments. And he's still learning that. But I feel like that he's going to grow into that level. Yeah, definitely. And I see that in him this year. Yeah. Batting fifth, I have in right field is A.J. Pollock. Yeah, hopefully A.J. Pollock finds a way to stay healthy and, and, you know, just figures out a way to live up to that contract. Got a really long contract and just injury problems as they have hit him throughout his entire career, hit him once again this past season. I really don't think he's – I don't think, for me, he's, he's no longer a center fielder. I think he's either a corner outfielder, either a right fielder or a left fielder. Yeah, I think he has to be at this point. You know, you got you to gotta, you know, prevent as much wear and tear on his body as possible. That's why I have him in right field instead of left, so that Jock Peterson splits time in left in right field, so that if Pollock rests, then I move Jock Peterson to right field, and then I would put Gavin Lux in left field. Yeah, I got you. Makes sense. That's why I have, I have Peterson moving back to left field, and, and he and Kike splitting the playing time there. Yep. And then, and then, and then, and then on occasions that if you want to put – Verdugo in right field, then you could put Cody Bellinger in center field. Yep, I got you. Because I, my expectations is that I expect Cody Bellinger to get a lot of the playing time at first base and in right field and in center field. Those are my three preferred positions for him. Okay, I got you. But but Cody Bellinger can can actually win a Gold Glove at first base, though you know. Yeah, I definitely think so. And also, and and also. And also as an outfielder too, he's a good, he's a he's an amazing outfielder. Yeah, I think he's a very very good outfielder. My six hitter, we I think you and I had this flip flop. My six hitter for the Dodgers is Corey Seager. Yeah, we did have that a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit backwards. Um, but you know, hey, I mean, he's he I think he'd do just fine a little bit buried in the lineup too. Uh, you know, it definitely takes the pressure off of him. The reason why I have him in the sixth spot is because looking at his stats last year. 
He had 19 home runs, 87 RBIs, a 272 average. It wasn't bad to end his season, but I feel like having him in the sixth spot to begin the 2020 season, it will actually help him regain his confidence after the Tommy John surgery. And a lot of Dodger fans are going to be so patient with him. A lot of people, a lot of fans wanted him traded, which I was surprised about. But really, I see a big 2020 for Corey Seager. I do, too. I see a bounce-back year. I see a year where he gets his confidence fully back. He gets more comfortable. Uh, a year fully removed from the surgery. And, you know, is able, to, is able to perform like the player that we expected him to be. And he's a, he's a really good shortstop, too, when healthy. He, he makes all the right throws. But when he played part of the 2018 season, when I saw one of his throws at first base in a game against the Giants, I knew from my, my, my gut was telling me uh, something wasn't right with his elbow again. Yeah, and thank God he got it figured out. And that's why he had to miss the rest of the 2018 season, which was a big blow for the Dodgers. And I felt like that that was a that was a big loss for the Dodgers, no matter what. Yeah, it definitely is. To, to lose Corey Seager. But having him fully healthy, having him having – I think he's fully healthy, and I think he looked – I think Corey Seager, despite having 19 home runs, I see him hitting about 25 to 30 homers this year. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And I think he's going to have a big year. But I, I also think Corey Seager is going to be a big part of the future for the Dodgers for a long time still. Yeah, I think so too. But I don't see him playing third base though. No, I don't. I see him, I see him being a shortstop. For the Dodgers, right? Yes, of course. Batting seventh for me is the catcher for the Dodgers, and that is the Fresh Prince of L.A., Will Smith. Yeah, I, I really like Will Smith a lot. I think that he's going to be a great catcher for them. Showed really, really nice two-way potential. I think he could be that next Russell Martin type for them. I mean, Russell Martin had 21 home runs, but really with Will Smith, he's even a better version of when Russell Martin came up for the Dodgers. Will Smith is a guy, he had a, he had a slump to end the season, to end the 2018, to, to 2019 season, but you know what? He was just going through growing pains. But I really think Will Smith this year is going to really, really, really improve on his numbers from a year ago. Yeah, I agree with that. I think he's going to have a really nice year. But do you have him hitting seventh, though? I actually had him hitting eighth. I just kind of like my catchers hitting eighth. That's just me. I like giving them the most amount of time possible to prepare with their pitcher uh, while they're on the bench. Um, I but, I mean, like, it doesn't really matter. I have him hitting seventh is because – for me, I have Jock leading off, and Will Smith hitting seventh for me makes sense. Is because I think Will Smith is like an upgrade for the Dodgers over Yasmani Grandol. Is because with Will Smith, he can defend behind the plate and really call a good game. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I mean, it just again, I just have him eighth, just because that's just like where that's just where I like having my catchers. I like having them, you know, have the ability to prepare as long as they possibly can with the pitcher in the dugout. Um, but, you know, again, that's just me. Yeah, that's why for me I have Will Smith hitting seventh. But hitting eighth, we might have this reversed. I have hitting eighth and playing center field as Alex Verdugo. We did actually have that reversed. Um, I, I kind of toyed with the idea of having Verdugo in the leadoff spot. Um, but I totally – you know, I, I get him starting a little bit lower in the lineup. So we did kind of have that fourth block. Yes, and, uh, and you have Jack leading off. And you have, do you have A.J. Pollock being moved from left to right field? Uh, de oh, definitely. Yeah, I want him in the corners, like, forever, as much as, as possible. As long as possible. And an early 
workload for him to begin the season. Yes. I think the early, the workload I think Pollock should get is when it's a Sunday day game, he gets that day game off. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. He gets that Sunday day game off, unless if it's a Sunday night nationally televised game on uh, ESPN, then he could get the Saturday game off. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. That's why I think he needs to have a, I think he needs to have the Sunday day games off to begin the season. Yeah, it's just for just, uh, you know keeping so that he can stay fresh. And I, although last year he was, he didn't have such a good playoffs because I felt like that when he came back, he heated up at the right time. But I just felt like that the the rhythm just wasn't there in the end. Yeah, no, he just you know he kind of wore down, and you know I. I it's interesting to bring in a term from basketball, but I think this kind of applies to AJ Pollock, which is you, you need to apply load management with AJ Pollock as use, far as the you, amount of games. You can use load management in baseball. I could see that, but not an NBA. No, I, I, yeah, I, I don't even want to, don't even get me started on load management in the NBA. But in baseball, I, I like load management in baseball better because you I can rest your veteran players on some, on some occasions, like, the day game after a night game on a Sunday against the, against the bad team. Like for example, the Marlins or, or for example, the pirates, who's going to be a dysfunction this year. The pirates are going to be an absolute mess. That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. For example. Yeah. Where I would sit Pollock and Turner too. Turner will, Turner's going to start every day, but I think, I think early in the season, I think he's, he should get some days off as well early. Yeah, I think so. Just so that so that Turner is also fresh for the stretch run. He, although he had a minor bruise in his knee last season, but I feel like Turner can still really hit the ball. Yeah, he, he still obviously can. He's still got that offensive ability. Uh, just It's just about keeping his body healthy. And, and, and then batting ninth for me for the Dodgers is whoever's starting. But I'm going to tell you, who my opening day starter for the Dodgers is. It's not Clayton Kershaw, but I'm going out on a limb with this one. It's going to be Walker Bueller on opening day against the Giants. Yeah, I have the same pick. Walker Bueller, the opening day starter? Yes. Because when I break down the schedule for the Dodgers in March, I am pulling it up right now. On March 26th, you can watch that game on ESPN when the Dodgers take on the Giants. I have Bueller starting that game on the 26th. On the 27th, I have that being Clayton Kershaw. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And then on Saturday, I have that being Kenta Maeda. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. then, and then Sunday's obviously an off day on the 29th because the Dodgers have two Sunday off days because of the All-Star game in L.A. Yeah, I mean, I, me and you have the same exact rotation. And then on the 30th, when the Rockies come to L.A. to play the Dodgers, Urias will start on the 30th, and then on the 31st would be Dustin May. Yep. And then I'll be back to Bueller again on April 1st. Mm-hmm. Yep. So That's I have right. Clayton Kershaw starting the second game of the series. Yes. Barring any injuries, but if in case, like, for example, if anything happens bad to the rotation, like injuries to, like, a Maeda or a Kershaw, then the next man up to be in that rotation is Ross Stripling. Yeah, I agree. He's kind of my swing man this year. He's the swing man for, my, for the Dodgers this year. And is, do, you, do you also put Tony Gonsolin as a swing man, too? I think possibly, you know, I, I think that he's definitely below uh, stripling in my mind. But I think 
heading into spring training, who's going to get that number five spot in the rotation heading into spring training. I think Dustin May is going to be ahead of everybody. Yeah, I think so. And I think he has the better stuff. And I just can't wait to see Dustin May have a rookie year this year. And I think, and I'm actually, I, and you know, he's my pick, he's my early pick to win the national league rookie of the year. And I think I'm going to stick to that pick when the season starts. Yeah. I think I'm going to wait uh, to make my pick, but I certainly think that he's going to be in the conversation for the NL rookie of the year award. Yeah. Let's talk about who could, who's in the conversation for the American league rookie of the year, the award. I think one of my early favorites is Lewis Robert from the Chicago White Sox who got an extension well-deserved. And I think Lewis Robert is going to be something special in Chicago. I think he's going to be very special. Um, I'm not really a huge fan of giving people extensions when they have not played more than of more than 15 seconds on a major league baseball field. That's just my personal opinion. Um, I think he's a great player. I certainly think that he has 30, 30 potential at the next level, but if he's, but he hasn't faced any major league pitching yet. So the idea that now on top of the fact that they gave him this big time extension, they're also paying him a $26 million bonus and they have all of these incentives wired into his contract. So essentially without stepping onto a major league field, they are paying him in upwards of a $102 million. I don't like that. He hasn't played one game yet, but I, but you know, I think he's going to be a really good player. And then, uh, and then, and then my other favorite for the AL Rookie of the Year award is you might know this face is Joe Adele, the Angels up and coming star. Yeah, I think he's going to be a really solid player. Yeah, I think he will. But I think I think Adele's going to start in left field so that maybe Upton could go on the trade block. I really think the Angels should trade Justin Upton before the season starts. Is because I think the Angels need to. I need they need to save all that money for some pitching help. That's why trading Justin Upton would make sense. I don't think the Angels really need him. They need to get all of the starting pitching and well, not even well starting pitching and bullpen pieces that they can possibly get. I think they, you know, especially after adding Rendon, I think that they have more than enough offense. I think it's just about building that pitching staff so they can at least compete uh, with you know with uh, Houston and Oakland um, and even Texas now after a couple of the moves that they've made. But uh, you know, pitching I think is the number one priority. And Justin moving Justin up, then you could certainly get some nice pieces for him. Yeah, I think the Angels should definitely move on from Justin Upton. I don't think the Angels really need him at this point. I don't think so either. That's why I have Joe Adele in the starting lineup, either as a left fielder or a right fielder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Brian Goodwin starting in right field only if Upton is traded. If Upton's not traded, then I have Joe Adele starting in right field. Yeah, I, and then I have uh, Upton starting in left field if that happens. But if Upton is traded, then Joe Adele will go over to left field. Yes. And then you obviously have the best player in the game in Mike Trout in center field, who at his age doesn't matter if he's wearing down at the position. He's not even kind of wearing down at all. He's amazing. He's, he he's the best player endurance. in baseball by far. He has good endurance and good ground, and he can still cover so much ground in center field. And I think he's still very fast for his age. Yeah, he's incredible, and his arm strength has also gotten better significantly over the course of his career. But with the Angels lineup, I just don't see any platoons. I see Tommy LaStella being the team's leadoff hitter on an everyday basis. Yeah, I think so. I agree. Because I think LaStella, with him being hurt last year, it could, that was all, he was close to having a rookie season. But at age 30, they could platoon him still, you know? 
I, I think they could, but, you know, he showed a good amount for me in such a small sample size with the Angels that I, I think he deserves to have the first crack at, at the stop at the, uh, at the job full time. I think he's going to be the everyday second baseman and lead off every day. I think so. And then David Fletcher is this utility guy. He's going to be used like Kike Hernandez. Yeah. And he's pretty good, too. David Fletcher is not bad. Yeah, he's a good young player. And but I think the I think that the Angels their lineup's going to be good, but I'm only concerned about their pitching. They're just like the Phillies in the American League. Yeah, I'm concerned about their pitching from top to bottom. I know they're getting Shohei Otani back, but you know, aside from that, him for every aside, Yeah, I mean, aside from Otani and you know the 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 Tehran signing, I guess was okay. Um, well, but it's not they, really that great. He's okay, um, and the the Bundy trade was okay. Um, but aside from Rendon, they haven't really done anything super significant with their team, especially their bullpen. It's been literally the same. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and also, it's like the Phillies. The Phillies are good whenever uh, whenever whenever they're healthy. But when I look at this Phillies depth chart, I really think that the Phillies should move on from Odubo Harara so that Andrew McCutcheon could play center field again and then put Jay Bruce in left field. Yeah, I agree with that. Because I think the Phillies have an all-star lineup, but I really think Joe Girardi has – has. I think Joe Girardi's ready to turn the Phillies around. But not yeah, they have a process, but I think he, he's going to do it. Yeah, they have a very, very solid team. It's, it's again, like the you know Angels in the sense that they don't really – have a lot of pitching, especially reliable starting pitching outside of, you know, Nola and even Wheeler, honestly, is kind of hit or, you know, hit or miss sometimes. And then, you know, they had so many injuries in their bullpen last year. So hopefully they're able to get that figured out and they need to get a full, they need to get a good full-time closer, which I think should be Sir Anthony Dominguez. I think Girardi's going to, I think Joe, I think with the Phillies, I really think that Philly fans and the players are going to love Joe Girardi. I think so too. I think he's gonna. I think he's going to be excellent. I think that was a great signing. Although you wanted him as the Mets manager, but Joe Girardi is going to be loved in Philadelphia. Yes, he will. And I'm I'm really excited to see the Phillies this year. By the way. Yeah, me too. I think they're going to be a lot of fun to watch. But I think the the, the I think I don't think they're going to get Donaldson now. I think the Phillies are going to commit to Scott Kingery at third base. Yeah, I think so. And I don't think Hazley's going to start at center field because I have center field being Andrew McCutcheon. Yeah, whenever he gets healthy, I have McCutcheon in center field as well. And then I have Jay Bruce starting too. Yes. And then I think Hoskins is going to have another big season. JT Realmuto too. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be a really, really high-powered offense. And I think Aaron Nola. That's who I think the Phillies cannot be reliant on Aaron Nola. No, I mean, listen, I know Aaron Nola is their number one starter. And, you know, he certainly, when he is healthy and right, he can be a fantastic pitcher. But you cannot put all of the burden on his shoulders. There has to be some performance out of the rest of that rotation, which is really what their problem was last year. They put all of the burden on Nola. And he, and he showed for, a, you know, like a six, seven start stretch that, you know, when he doesn't have guys behind him that perform – it, it, it can you know it puts a lot on him. Can Arietta do it? He's hit and miss nice. sometimes. Uh, he's hit and miss, and you know he's having elbow problems now. And you know, 
I, I just I'm not a really big Arietta fan. I used to I like Gary Arietta, but he's kind of declining nowadays. Yeah, he is. You know, he's just been a, a shell of himself ever since that Cy Young season. Doesn't have a doesn't really have the velocity that he once was. He's thrown about 90, 90, 90 to eighty eight mile per hour in fastball, but I think his velocity's kind of dipped down a bit. Yeah, and and his control has also you know really Enough. gotten away from him as well. And now a true or false game? Do you think the Rockies trade Nolan Arenado to the Braves? I'm going to say no to that one. I don't think the Rockies are motivated to move on from Nolan Arenado, despite this opt out clause he has. I think that I'm going to go with I'm going to go with false. Um, and and it's not like I can't see them maybe trading Arenado. It's just the fact that I think it's so hard to do. It's so hard to sell that to your fan base, like arguably the best player in the history of their organization. You know, you sign him to that massive contract and then all of a sudden you just unload him. Like it, it's, it's very difficult to sell that. And plus it's hard to sell that, that big of a contract to a lot of teams because he's being paid, especially on the back end of that deal, he's being paid like $35, $36 million a year. For me, I don't think the Rockies are going to trade Nolan Arenado. Those trade rumors around him are false because I think uh, knowing that when I was a kid, when I watched the Rockies play the Dodgers, I saw Todd Helton play. And Todd Helton stuck to the Rockies through good times and bad. And I think Nolan Arenado's the next Todd Helton. Yeah, I think Nolan Arenado can be that guy. Um, you know, certainly loves the organization enough to sign a huge lucrative deal with them. Um, and I think that, you know, when you have a guy like Arenado, who's a top five, top 10 player in the game, it's, it's very difficult for me as a, as a front office executive to want to move on from a guy like that. The Rockies won't move on from Arenado. He just loves that. De- he loves Denver and Colorado and that fan base loves Nolan Arenado. but I really yes. think the Rockies, what they need to do is pitching, 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 but they really haven't, their pitching hasn't been that good since 2018. No, it hasn't. Kyle Freeland fall, you know, fell off. Um, you know, they're, they're still trying to figure out their whole bullpen situation. And, you know, they have a couple of nice young starters in the, uh, in the minor leagues, particularly Riley Pint. But, you know, they're still kind of working on getting those guys up. And, you know, you're working to improve Jeff Hoffman and, you know, have consistency out of John Gray. So it's a really long road for them to be able to fix their pitching. Yeah, but I really think Herman Marquez is going to be something special. But the only change I'm going to make with the Rockies when it comes to their left fielder, I don't really envision Ian Desmond starting every day in left field because I really think the Rockies should move Ryan McMahon to left field because I really want to make room for Brendan Rodgers. Yeah, I want Brendan Rodgers to be the full-time second baseman. And do you move McMahon to left field? Sure, yeah. I say that so that in center field would be uh, – it could be between Ramel Tapia or David Dahl, but David Dahl just can't stay healthy. No, he cannot, which is a shame because he's such a good offensive piece. I think since he's not healthy, you just want to be careful with him and just have him be a reserve player. That's why I think Ramel Tapia is going to start in center field. Well, either that or, uh, you know, you make him a quarter outfielder to kind of take the burden off of him. That's why I have McMahon going to left field when the, when the new season begins so that because I really think when Brendan Rodgers had that surgery, it gave him time to rehab that. And I really think Brendan Rodgers is going to come in and be, be a special player for the Rockies. Yeah, I agree with that. But I'm not sure if he can be a LeMahieu or anything. I think he has the potential to be better than LeMahieu. 
LeMahieu and and LeMahieu to the Yankees. I think he. I think that's a bit. That's a really good fit for DJ LeMahieu to be a Yankee. It's a stellar fit for DJ LeMahieu. And I'm looking at Riley Pitt right now. I think Riley Pitt could really take over for John Gray in the rotation. I mean, he's got excellent stuff. High high 90s fastball, touching 100, uh, wipeout slider, um, you know, solid, smooth mechanics, has the ability to just, you know, have the ball come effortlessly out of his hand with a very smooth, effortless wind-up, effortless motion. Um, you know, a young kid. I, I think that he's going to be very, very good once he, you know, fully develops. I think his I think to begin his rookie year whenever that would be he'll be a reverse splits guy because pitching at Coors Field is so hard but when I see Riley Pitt one day pitch against the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium I think Riley Pitt is going to love pitching at Dodger Stadium yeah I think so because it's a pitcher's park but really Coors Field's kind of it's still going to be kind of hard for him to get used to pitching in that type of elements yeah no of course and you know that's going to take some time yeah like Walker Bueller struggles there yeah, well, it's a hard place to pitch. It's not. It's not Ace's fault for pitching bad at Coors Field, but it's just hard to. It's just hard to pitch there. Yeah, no, it is. It is. It's all, basically all offense or bust. Yeah, pretty much. Because that's why I think the Rockies have a. Uh, I, that's why I think the Rockies are going to be a top five team in the NL and homers this year. But the pitching is going to be bad again. Yeah, they just need to they, – they just can't get it figured out, and, you know, they, they need to just do better. I think their ace right now is Herman Marquez. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think he had a, he had a decent 12-5 and five season, but it could have been better. Well, of course, and, you know, it doesn't obviously help that, you know, he's, he's pitching on, you know, a bad team. Puts a lot of pressure on your shoulders to go out there and be perfect every day. And be a stopper, which he is. He has good. He stuff, can be. Though. Yeah, has the potential to be a big time stopper. And Freeland, I think, will get back on track. I just felt like last year it was kind of a lost year for Kyle Freeland. Yeah, I think so, and you know, I, I think that he's going to be able to get his stuff back. Yeah, absolutely. And then for the Diamondbacks, you think Cole Calhoun is going to be a great complement, complimentary piece in that lineup for the Diamondbacks? Yeah, I think so. You know. 25, 30 home run type of guy. He's going to love hitting in that ballpark. He is. And I, be, I bet you Angel fans are going to miss him. Yeah, no, I think they will. And do you see, uh, my question for you is, do you see the Yankees uh, starting Miguel Andujar as their designated hitter? Um, if it were me, I would start Miguel Andujar at third base. Um, and Giancarlo Stanton is my designated hitter. I ask that because the Yankees really liked what they saw from Gio Urshela this past season. I think Gio Urshela is going to have another solid season. Yeah, I don't think Gio Urshela is better than Miguel Andujar. And I think that Miguel Andujar... One home runs, but that doesn't tell me anything. No, I think that that tells me that he is a, a good offensive player who plays in a really good ballpark. But he is not nearly the offensive talent that Miguel Andujar is. That's why you could put – that's why – well, the reason why I asked that, because Andujar just came off a shoulder injury, and I think starting him off as the DH would benefit him. I mean, that is a possibility, but certainly I'm thinking – but, you know, I'm thinking long-term when, when I say that. Yeah, because I think Clint Frazier is going to start in center field when Aaron Hicks 
goes on the shelf because of Tommy John surgery, but really the Yankees are going to miss Aaron Hicks to begin the season. Yeah, yeah I, I think they will. Because the thing with Aaron Hicks, he brings talent, speed in center field, and he is clutch with the bat. Yeah, no, he is. And the Yankees are going to be such a fun team to watch this year. I can't wait to see that, but I'm still calling a Dodgers-Yankees World Series when this before the 2020 season begins, and I think that's going to be who I think is going to play in the Fall Classic. Yeah, I think so. I really want to see that because Garrett Cole's on that Yankee on the on the Yankees, and I think I knew Garrett Cole was a Yankee fan growing up, but I really think Garrett Cole is going to be such a good fit for that team. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a perfect signing for them. That's what they needed. They need a consistent number one starter. Um, and, and Garrett Cole is certainly that guy. Yeah. And then Tanaka, number two, I think, he, I think he'll come around. He'll, he'll stick around next year. James Paxson for sure. But I think the Yankees need to move on from Domingo Herman, who's suspended for the first 61 games of the season. I think, you know, you move on from the standpoint of a, you know, PR type of situation. It's bad press to have a guy like that on your team in that organization. But, you know, I wouldn't be so quick to do it just because of, just because of the talent that he showed you. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I think there's teams to, but so are you going to stick to who who you have on the hot seat for managers entering the 2020 season? One of them on my list is Scott service. And I think Bud Black, I have to put on there for sure. Yeah, I'm sticking to it. I'm sticking to my list. Bud Black, I really don't think he's that – I don't really think he's a good manager for the Rockies, in my opinion. Well, I, I don't know. I think the, the thing is, is that he's more of a – you know, he's a pitcher, and, you know, you would, you would think that he'd be in there to help build the pitching staff, but it just hasn't worked out that way. No, it hasn't. But really, I think, I think that the Colorado Rockies are going to be – they're not going to be that great – but my second place team in the NL West behind the Dodgers, I could see that being San Diego. I could see it being Arizona. I think that they're better right now, especially with their pitching than San Diego. San Diego, I think, but you think, but you and I are going out on a limb that the Padres are going to make room for McKenzie Gore to be on the opening sure. day rotation. Sure. Yeah, definitely. I think it's time. Get him up here with Paddock and uh, Garrett Richards and Zach Davis. Yeah, and just and watch him go. I think he's going to be fantastic. And I think you can move Joey Lucchese as a long reliever. I don't have a problem with that. I don't either. Because Lucchese could really eat up innings for that. And then I don't think the Padres will move on from Kirby Yates. I think Kirby Yates is the right person to be the closer for the Padres. I think so. He fits into that role perfectly. And then Pomeranz, I don't think he's going to be in the rotation. I think he's going to be like an Archie Bradley for the Padres as the eighth no, I... setup man. No, I agree. I mean, you look at his splits last year when he moved into the bullpen, 27 games of 1.89 ERA when he was moved into the bullpen. So I think he really found a home there, uh, and that, that's where I think he should stay. Yeah, he shouldn't be moved to the rotation. He should be an eighth-inning setup man for, for, so that he gives the ball to, uh, to Kirby Yates for the ninth inning. And then the seventh-inning guy, I think the Padres should definitely keep Craig Stammen. Yes, I agree. So that you have your th- you have three really good back end pieces for the Padres. Their bullpen's not bad, but when I look at their team and all the skill position players they have, who I think they really missed was Fernando Tatis Jr. But I really think Fernando Tatis Jr. is going to have 
a season to remember this year. Yeah, I think so. I think especially if he stays healthy. Um, he is just one of the most dynamic talents that we have in this game. He is an incredible physical talent um, with just so many flashy, brilliant gifts. And I think in such unbelievable instincts as well. And I think he's going to be a problem for teams. Yeah, I saw that when he played against the Dodgers. And I think he is he's definitely a guy that can really hit homers at Dodger Stadium and also hit homers off the Dodgers at Petco Park. Yeah, I think so. And I really think he's going to be a problem for a lot of NLS teams. Yes, he does. Yes, yes. But yes, I he really will. Think with the pitching depth that the Dodgers have, they could really find a way to wear him out when, when they make when they throw a swing and miss stuff at him. Well, you know, you can contain players for so long, but you can't stop a guy like him. Yeah, he's on he's unbeatable at the plate. Yeah. And with his glove at shortstop. Yeah. Yeah, he's just an amazing player. I really don't think uh, Austin Hedges should be the starting catcher for the Padres. I think Francisco Mejia is, is going to be the starting catcher for them. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think Profar will lead off, and I think Margot. How I construct this Padres lineup, I really could see Margot hitting eighth. Yeah, I think so. Bring that speed to the bottom of the lineup to flip it over. So that you have Profar leading off, and then you can have uh, you and I have Tatis hitting second. I have Tatis hitting third, and then hitting second would be Tommy Pham. Yeah, I like that. I really think Tommy Pham's an upgrade over Hunter Renfro. I think he is. I, he doesn't have as much power as Renfro, but I think he's an all-around better player. But I think with Renfro, he's home run or bust. Yeah, he is. Yeah, so with that being said, now let's talk about uh, the NFL Week 17 recap. Let's start off with talking about the Patriots and Dolphins game. I was so shocked when the Patriots lost to the Dolphins in the last game of the regular season. I was like, it was a, it was a game that we needed to win. I think that that game more than ever just goes to show you the absolute anemic offense that the Patriots have. The fact that you're going in there against the Miami Dolphins team that is brutal and you cannot beat them on the offensive side of the ball is just absolutely embarrassing. It, it really is. And I know, and even at the end of the game where, you know, they had about 25, 30 seconds left on the clock, three timeouts. Normally in that situation, that's an easy, easy opportunity for Tom Brady to move the football down the field. And they just were unable to do it. Yeah. Cause Ryan Patrick threw the, through. The, the game-winning touchdown pass to Mike Gusicki. Yeah, and the Dolphins, I, I got to give it a, I got to give a hand to the Dolphins. They tanked in probably the best possible way that you can do it, which is, yeah, you're a bad team, but you play hard and you're well-coached. And I think that they found out through this year that they really just have to build the talent because Brian Flores is the right coach for them. He is. But in that game in particular, I was very disappointed. The offense was – I thought the offense was – had its moments when Tom Brady threw that touchdown pass to Landon Roberts. That was a good bright spot, but I just felt like that we should have had a bye week. Well, I mean, you know, it is what but it the is. And... The unthinkable, they could really, they could really do something that hasn't been done in the Brady and Belichick era is go to the playoffs, go to the Super Bowl as a wild card team. Which is just, uh, like I've mentioned, that's not happening. I don't think that they're doing it. I have no confidence in them getting to the Super Bowl whatsoever. 
Um, and if I do have any confidence, it is like probably about 5%. And the only, and that 5% only stems from the greatness of Belichick and Brady, because this offense is so anemic that they cannot run into Kansas city and Baltimore and, and beat them in, in a shootout type of atmosphere. Tennessee is no easy out. We'll talk about that game in a minute, but I have new England at least beating the Tennessee Titans in the, in the wild card game tomorrow. No, I do too, but I think that that's going to be a really, really tough game because Tennessee is a very good football team. I think they make it competitive, but I think that the Patriots are ultimately going to win the game by a close margin. Yes, but really, Ryan Tannehill is going to make things interesting, and I really think the game plan tomorrow, we'll talk about this in just a minute, that what my only concern about the Patriots' defense is how are we going to stop Derrick Henry? Yeah, that's really the main thing. Um, I think that you can put a lot of – I think that you can really kind of clamp down on the passing game, especially if you just manage to have Stephon Gilmore shadow A.J. Brown all day long. The big thing is, is that you have to slow down Derrick Henry, who brings in a combination of not only speed, but at six foot three, 240 pounds. He's a guy that can run you over straight in between the tackles. And it's a really, really difficult thing to prepare for, and it's a difficult thing to stop. So it's just going to be about containing him in the running game and, you know, putting pressure on Tannehill to have to throw the ball, which is going to be hard with this good secondary. Yeah, absolutely. And then let's talk about, let's talk about when the Giants played the Eagles. You guys had a chance to potentially spoil the Cowboys' season if the Reds if, – if both teams, both the Eagles and Cowboys lost. But really, the Eagles and – and, and Cowboys both won their games, but the Eagles are in the playoffs. Yeah, and you know what? The Eagles deserve to be in the playoffs more than the Cowboys. Neither team really deserves to be in the playoffs. I think they're both atrocious in their own special way. Um, but they, they're, you know, the Eagles more so deserve to be in the playoffs than the Cowboys because the, Cowboy, because the Cowboys have this great roster and did absolutely nothing with it. Meanwhile, Carson Wentz was throwing to J- mannequins from J.C. Penney and managed to, you know, win their most three, three most important games of the season, final month of the season, threw for over 1,200 yards, 12 TDs, one pick, and was absolutely sensational throwing to pretty much nothing. And on the, and on the Giants, what did you like in that last game against, uh, against Philly? Did you, was there any bright spots in the game for the Giants? Um, I think just the fact that they kept it close early on in the football game, I think that there was a good, uh, there was good aggression. In, you know, early on in the game, there was good tackling. Um, you know, I, I think that obviously the one positive you can find is that, Sa- you know, Saquon Barkley, uh, that 68-yard rushing touchdown. But there were so many negatives, too, the way that they gave up at the end of the game. Uh, the fact that outside of that 68-yard run, Barkley really didn't do much all game long. Uh, the offensive line didn't have, you know, give, didn't give Daniel Jones a lot of time to throw the football. And the defense, like I mentioned, the defense gave up at the end of the game. It, it was just embarrassing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and before we get back to and, – and also, I really think that uh, – I really think that the Giants have some positives heading into next year with the offense. But I really think that they really need to beef up that defense. Again. Yeah, beef, yeah, beef up every portion of that defense. Um, I, I think that they – have a couple of bright spots in that defense. Um, you know, I like I, I, I like Dexter Lawrence. Um, I think that uh, Jabril Peppers had a couple of nice games when he was healthy. Um, you know, I think DeAndre Baker, uh, while I think for the most part he was terrible, 
Um, there were a couple of moments at a couple of games where he showed some flashes of nice play. And, you know, on top of the defense, they also need to build up that continue to build up that offensive line. Absolutely. And also uh, the offseason needs for the Giants is really offensive line and defense and their season recap. I felt like that they did some nice things this year. They, they were, they started out bad, but really going beginning the Daniel Jones era was really what kind of saved their season, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, their season was about what I expected, you know, the, the top 10 pick in the draft. Um, I didn't really have a whole lot of high expectations. Daniel Jones for the most part, really blew me away. I was really, really shocked at how good he was this year. He had multiple five touchdown games. He's the first rookie in NFL history to have multiple five touchdown, no interception games in the same season, um, which is just unbelievable to me. Uh, he showed flashes of brilliance. He's incredibly mobile. He's accurate. He's poised. I think he commands that huddle really well. Um, now the key is, you know, just to continue to build up the rest of the roster. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and also, uh, let's talk about, do you think Daniel Jones has a sophomore slump? No, um, no, I really don't. I think that there's continued progression. Now, I will say this. It is a little difficult for him to, you know, now only be in his second year in the NFL and now have to learn a new playbook right off the bat. I think that that's going to take some time. And I think that there's going to be some growing pains in his sophomore year. Um, but I certainly think that you're going to still continue to see some progress, especially if they're able to build up that offensive line. Um, you know, if they're able to have Sterling Shepard and Evan Ingram and Saquon Barkley stay healthy, if Golden Tate, you know, is on the field all 16 games for them, uh, I, I think that there's definitely some progress to be made. Yeah, there is progress to be made, that's for sure. So with that, with that being said, uh, let's talk about, what is taking so long in Big D for Jason Garrett's job status? And do you think Jerry Jones is willing to fire Jason Garrett at this point right now? I think he should be willing. I think it's absurd that he's been around this long. Um, if it were me, I would have fired Jason Garrett after the, after the Eagles game. Um, you know, I think that he is literally the definition of mediocrity in the NFL. Uh, he took arguably one of the most talented rosters in the league and buried them in constant underachievement. Um, they had absolutely no fire playing at the end of the season. They gave up in, in big games. Uh, they underachieved in big games. And, you know, Jason Garrett just really doesn't have any idea how to use his personnel on a day-in, day-out basis. And I don't think that he deserves to be the head coach. Yeah, I think the Cowboys could face a very easy or maybe tough decision. So. Before we get to our playoff predictions, let's talk about who's going to be the next head coach for the Panthers since we we didn't get to that, since we talked about who would be the next head coaches for the Giants and the Browns for the Panthers. It doesn't necessarily for them that they should go with an offensive or defensive-minded head coach. I think they should go with Robert Salah. I actually think that they should go with Josh McDaniels. Now, I don't know how likely it is that that'll happen, but I think it'll be interesting because I think that the Panthers really could potentially be in the market for a new quarterback. I think that there's high potential that they don't bring back Cam Newton this coming season. Um, and I think if that's the case, then you can bring in a guy like a Josh McDaniels, draft a new quarterback, and, and you know have them develop that relationship together. Yeah, whoever that may be. If the Panthers decide to not go with Will, not to commit to Will Greer or Kyle Allen, I really think that uh, 
the Panthers could use this quarterback market. They should really look into Justin Herbert. I definitely think they should look at Justin Herbert. I think he'd be a good fit. You know, you have good weapons, uh, DJ Moore, Curtis Samuel, really, really good dynamic weapons down the field. Um, you know, you have obviously one of the best running backs in the game in Christian McCaffrey, and he's dynamic enough both throwing the football and running the football to be able to fit in a multitude of offensive schemes. I think the Panthers and Colts are QB needy teams. That's why I think both of them will be having an eye out on Justin Herbert come his pro day. I think expect the Chargers, the Panthers, and the Colts to attend Justin Herbert's pro day. Yeah, a hundred percent. You are a hundred percent correct. Yeah, I think all three. Because this is a this is a deep quarterback class, and I think that I think that I don't know who would want Justin Herbert, but I really think that. They're not getting Joe Burrow. There's no way in the world that they're not going to get Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow is going to be a Bengal, and, and the Bengals are for sure moving on from Andy Dalton. Yeah, I mean, they'd be stupid not to, honestly. They really would. Assuming Joe Burrow is the number one pick in the draft, do you think Joe Burrow is going to be the day one, the week one starter for the Bengals? Um, I definitely think it's possible. Um, you know, if it were me personally, just because of the way that that team is currently constructed – um, they're still lacking in quality offensive line play. And I think that they really need to figure out their, you know, their, their weapons situation at the moment. For me, I would probably bring in a one-year transition guy, uh, like an older veteran guy to kind of, you know, play in front of Burrow and, you know, just allow him to learn at first. And then, you know, eventually as you continue to build up your team, you'll, you know, you move them into year two and, and you see what happens after that. I get what you're saying here, but I, Usually the number one pick is usually the guy that starts week one. And I think Joe, I do expect Joe Burrow to be the week one starter for the Bengals. Yeah, I can definitely, I definitely wouldn't discount the idea of him being the week one starter. Um, You know, I I just think that right now, as it is currently constructed, I don't think that the Bengals are ready for him. And what I mean by that is, is that I don't think they're going to give him the necessary, A, the necessary protection and B, the necessary quality weapons around him other than Joe Mixon and we're waiting on the health of AJ Green uh, for him to be able to be fully fully successful in the NFL uh, that's just your opinion but in my opinion I do expect Joe Burrow to uh, be the Bengals starting quarterback come week one I mean I would again I, I wouldn't be surprised if he is the week one starter it, it wouldn't make it wouldn't be a total idiotic move for them but you know, I just think that it's it's better for me to build up the roster first than to have him go out and get killed and, you know, just be uh, constantly making mistakes under duress. Yeah, with this quarterback class coming, I see at least two or three day one starters in this draft class yeah. of quarterbacks. Yeah, I mean, this, this, this quarterback draft class is absolutely fantastic. I mean, you mentioned Burrow. 78% completion percentage at the Heisman Trophy winner. An absolutely unbelievable year. Uh, Tua, if he's healthy, is a great, great quarterback. Justin Herbert certainly has the tangibles to be great. Uh, a couple of guys that are un- you know, are not going to be mentioned in that um, you know, caliber. Jacob Eason out of the University of Washington has one of the best arms in the country. Uh, Jordan Love out of Utah State has some of the best tangible – has some of the best – tangible physical skills out of any college player in the country. Still a very raw talent, though. Um, I mean, as far, as far as physical gifts go, 
from Burrow all the way down to Love. This quarterback class is full of potential stars. That's why I see at least two or three day one starters in next year's draft class, in this upcoming draft class. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see it. And I think whoever Justin Herbert gets drafted with, I think he'll be the, he'll be the day one starter too. Yeah, I think so. And I think Justin Herbert, I, I'm going to throw in the Tampa Bay Bucks in there to, to be at Justin Herbert's pro day. I think the Bucks might want to move on from Jameis Winston. Yeah, it's so interesting. I don't really know what to make of Jameis Winston. At the same, you know, in the same breath that he can throw 400 yards and four touchdowns in a game very easily, he can also throw four picks in, in a game. It's very weird. If he's able to, you know, bring down his turnover rate, he could be unbelievable. But at the same time, he's so unpredictable that you just don't really know. If it were me, I would want to go out and get a quarterback because I can't deal with that inconsistency every week. All right. So now let's talk about our NFL, our, our 2019-2020 NFL playoff bracket. And mm-hmm. let's start with the AFC and who is going to move on to the divisional round. At, at the end of this weekend. So let's start with the Patriots and Titans game. I have the New England Patriots beating the Tennessee Titans, and they're going to Kansas City. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's going to be a really close football game. Don't be surprised if Tennessee puts up a really big fight. This is an offense that can put up a lot of points. Uh, but in the end, I get the better coach. I get the better quarterback. And to me, that's more, and I, I get uh, an excellent defense as well that I think is going to win this game. And then my second, and for the second AFC wildcard game I have for this pick, the Houston Texans beating the Buffalo Bills. I actually am picking, I'm actually going against that. I think that the Buffalo Bills are going to win this football game. I think I look up and down the roster. And aside from, you know, quarterback and and wide receiver talent, this is a better team with the Buffalo Bills. I get a top five defense. I get a great coach. And I get a team that, has a really is a really really good road team. Josh Allen's road excuse me road statistics this year are really really impressive. So I think that they go in to uh, to Houston. I think that they play a hard nose style of football. I think Tre'Davious White is all over um, DeAndre Hopkins all game long, and I think they put a lot of pressure on Deshaun Watson in that offensive line. And I think Buffalo has a legitimate chance of winning this game, and I think that they do. They have a very good chance at winning this game, that's for sure. And uh, I really think that uh, – I really think that uh, even though I like Houston and Deshaun Watson, but if the Patriots were the number one seed, I would definitely have either one of Houston or Buffalo come into New England and play. But really, Buffalo is like one of these teams that are just so much fun to watch. And you have B- Buffalo going to uh, Baltimore. Yeah, I do. I think Buffalo is, is a scary – kind of a sneaky team a little bit different from Tennessee in the sense that Tennessee is sneaky with their offense. Buffalo just comes in there and plays hard nose, aggressive defensive football. They're so fast on defense. They have incredible tackling ability. Uh, They're strong. They have a good secondary. And I think that they can give, uh, I, I think they can go on the road and be really, really good in big games. They sure can, but it's all about receivers for Josh Allen though. But that defense for the bills is really good. It is very special. And then let's move on to the NFC side and talk about who's advancing to the divisional round. Uh, Mm -hmm. Saints and the Vikings, I think, even though the Saints want to get revenge on that Minneapolis miracle two years ago, I think the Saints beat the Vikings and they go to Green Bay. 
Yeah, I think this is easy for me. Um, the Saints are, are the better team. Um, and also, I, I get the far better quarterback um, in Drew Brees. I think that this Saints team is unstoppable right now. And I just don't trust Kirk Cousins even remotely in a big game like this. And plus, there's a good possibility that the Vikings may be without Dalvin Cook. So I'm taking the Saints very easily in this game. The thing with Kirk Cousins is he could really play well in this game, which I think he will, but the result won't be there. No, I think it's possible that he does play well in this game. Do I trust him to play well in this game? Not necessarily, which is why I have so – I, I think that the Saints could win by a, a pretty decent margin. And then uh, going to the East Coast now are the Philadelphia Eagles host Russell Wilson and the Seattle Seahawks. Both quarterbacks are very good. I think Carson Wentz is going to look very nervous in his first playoff start. But will he will he play bad? I'm going to say no, but he's going to look a little bit nervous. I think he's going to have a – moment that he will have a nervous time in the playoffs like in, in his first snap in the playoffs and mm-hmm. he hasn't played in the playoffs before but really I think the Seahawks squeak one squeak a win in Philadelphia I'm gonna pick an upset I think that the Eagles are winning this football game at home I get a team in the Eagles that have incredible momentum um, and I get a Seahawks team that's still trying to figure out their running game obviously losing Chris Carson and Rashad Penny and C.J. Procise is a really big deal for them, and they're trying to figure it out with Marshawn Lynch and uh, uh, the other guy. I completely forget his name. Travis Homer, thank you. Um, And I I think that the Eagles' defensive front is fantastic. They're one of the top ten – they're one of the top five rushing defenses in the league. So I think you can shut that down, and then you have the ability – and then with that pass rush as well – you go up against the bad Seahawks offensive line and you put a lot of pressure on Russell Wilson to have to make throws. And I I think that the Eagles are coming out. They have a chip on their shoulder. They're playing tenacious. It's a really big home field advantage in there in Philadelphia. And I think that they are able to squeak this one out. But you have two upsets in this, in this pick. I do. I have two upsets in the wild card round that is going to advance to the divisional round next weekend. So my AFC divisional round picks, is mm-hmm. you might agree or disagree with me. I have New England and Kansas City, and I have the Patriots moving on to the AFC Championship game with a three-point victory over Kansas City. Yeah, I disagree. Um, I think it's over for the New England Patriots at, at Kansas City. I think that, you know, this is a team with the Patriots that they just cannot compete offensively uh, with Kansas City. They just don't have the firepower uh, both in the receiving core and in the running game. And, you know, even with that as well, the Kansas City defense since week nine or ten, they've been one of the top five defenses in the NFL, and they get home field advantage in Kansas City, which is a very tough place to go on the road. And normally I'd trust New England in that situation. I don't with this offense, and I think that it's over for the Patriots in the divisional round. So, so you have Kansas City moving on to the AFC championship game, and I have New England – getting past Kansas City to the AFC Championship game. And with that being said, Baltimore, I have them playing Houston, and I actually Mm -hmm. have Houston beating Baltimore, meaning that the Patriots host the AFC title game at Gillette Stadium, and the Texans play in their first AFC title game in team history. Wow, that is a bold pick. I think that the – I have the Ravens winning that game. Um, I really do. They're just the best. And the Ravens, in my scenario, would be playing the Bills. 
Um, and I, I think that the Ravens are a much better football team. They expect, I think they have the better quarterback. Uh, they have the better all-around weapons on the offensive side. They have a great running game with Mark Ingram, uh, two really, really good tight ends, a good deep threat in Hollywood Brown, and the most dynamic athlete anywhere in football, Lamar Jackson on the football field, and just and also a very, very good defense under um, under Wink Martindale, who has really ever since. They got Marcus Peters. They've been great in the secondary. They've started blitzing more. They're putting pressure on teams. And this Baltimore team in that home field advantage that they have is just too good. Yeah, it's just too good right now. That's for sure. And I think that uh, I think but you and I both have different scenarios with this playoff bracket. I have New England hosting Houston in the AFC title game and you have Baltimore hosting Kansas City. Yes. And then let's let's move on to the NFC and who's in my scenario, who I have winning their divisional games, their divisional round matchups. I have the San Francisco 49ers beating the Seattle Seahawks. And then I have green, I have green Bay beating new Orleans. 